It's Thursday, July 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Oregon Governor Kate Brown and the Trump administration have reached an agreement for federal officers to leave the front lines of the federal courthouse in Portland in hopes to de-escalate protests that have been going on for two months. State troopers and local police will move in to protect the area. Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the phased withdrawal of federal officers from Portland. Next, cigarette smoking may have had a comeback during the coronavirus pandemic. Americans are spending less on travel and entertainment, and as a result, are having more opportunities to light up. We're also seeing that some people are moving away from vaping and returning to traditional cigarettes after restrictions on e-cigarette flavors. Jennifer Maloney, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, a state investigation is underway after video surfaced of a charity concert last Saturday featuring the Chainsmokers that showed a lack of proper social distancing from concertgoers. Part of the investigation will focus on why the event was issued a permit to begin with. Organizers insist that coronavirus guidelines were in place. Dan Adler, writer at Vanity Fair, joins us for how the Hamptons event is under fire. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Both sides are in agreement that uh, starting tomorrow afternoon, Thursday afternoon, our Customs, Border Patrol, and ICE officers uh, that have been on the streets of Portland will begin leaving. Joining us now is Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Good to be with you. We had an update to what's going on in Portland, Oregon. It's been the scene for protests and clashes between federal agents and protesters for about two months now. They're all at the federal courthouse there in Portland, Oregon. And the latest is the governor of Oregon and the Trump administration announced an agreement at de-escalating the tensions by having some of the federal agents step away from the front lines. There's a little bit of confusion as to how it will all play out. The governor is saying that they're going to be moving out Thursday, but the acting DHS secretary, Chad Wolf, said, well, we're not going to leave until things are actually under control. So we'll still have to see how this plays out. But Nick, tell us what's going on. Both sides are kind of spinning it the way they want to to try to walk away with a win here. But essentially what's going to happen is tomorrow the Oregon State Police, under this agreement, are going to replace most of the DHS agents and officers at that courthouse. Oregon State Police are going to deploy around the courthouse. There will be U.S. Marshals and Federal Protective Service officers who normally guard that courthouse. They will remain there, but Oregon State Police are supposed to come in and basically keep the crowds away from the courthouse. Wolf and DHS officials are saying that they're not leaving the city. They're going to leave downtown, but they will remain in the city the same with the same size force, just kind of on standby to take kind of a wait and see approach. And if the state police deliver on what they've agreed to, then they will start to draw down their forces. What have the protests been about? Because as I mentioned, they've been going on for about two months. I think initially it might have started in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. But what are the protests about and why is the federal court building there the site of it? These were uh, this was part of the same wave of mobilizations that we saw across the country after the killing of George Floyd. They persisted a little bit longer in Portland, a city with a you know long protest tradition. And then you know there's a cluster of federal buildings downtown in the city that have always kind of been a you know a, a target for protesters who are 
angry at the federal government over one thing or another. But in this case, you know, they really zeroed in on this federal courthouse across the street from a major park. And so, you know, what we saw is once the Homeland Security agents really went in there in a kind of heavy handed way early in July, that courthouse transformed from kind of a vague symbol of injustice into like a proxy for the Trump administration itself. And so they really kind of made it um, into a standoff between the protesters and the White House. And, you know, and that's, I think, what led to both sides digging in even even deeper. The DHS deployment has called this Operation Diligent Valor. The governor, Kate Brown, has called these federal agents an occupying force. Tell us a little bit about the violence that's been going on, because you see some of the pictures and there's fires all over the place. I mean, it's getting pretty crazy out there. It has been getting crazy. I mean, it looks like Gotham. And the you know, DHS officials would say that, that at the root of all of this is the failure of city and state officials to protect the federal courthouse and to support the usually small contingent of federal officers who are tasked with protecting that facility. And they say that the, you know, the need for this reinforcement was because they weren't getting the protection they needed. And of course, as, as you mentioned, the you know state and city officials there who are Democrats and, and at odds with the administration are really blame the administration for throwing gasoline on a fire. And you know, in their view, these protests were petering out and the president was looking for a kind of wedge issue for his campaign and his effort to, to present himself as a, you know, a kind of law and order candidate. And in Portland, you know, he found uh, a place to, to, you know, to basically put on a show. This is going to be a big test for Portland police and local officials there. Now, you know, they're going to have to step up and create that order. It's going to be a difficult situation with the backdrop of the agents still kind of lingering there. What have local officials and local police said about how they're going to take charge? They haven't given many operational details, but you're right. I mean, this is going to be a big challenge. I think the unknown thing is whether the protesters will kind of wind down a little bit and cool off and sort of take this as a win, or whether they will see the state and city um, police now, you know, cooperating basically with the Trump administration and come at them with the same fury and intensity you know, that could be very dangerous because, you know, these federal agents and officers have had the benefit of this big hulking courthouse that they can kind of use operationally, almost like a fortress, right? Whereas these state police and city police, they're going to just be presumably out in the street trying to keep the crowds away from that perimeter fence. And so we won't see that tonight, but I guess Thursday, you know, um, will be the real test. Yeah. And as you said, who knows if the protesters will even take it as a win, perceive it as that uh, when there's still going to be such a police presence there. It's hard to know what they want, a total absence of people there guarding the courthouse. You know, it's just tough to see what they're going to claim to be as their victory and, and all of that. I mean, and it's not a, like a monolithic group, like with a leader or anything. So, so it's very difficult to predict. I mean, uh, there, you know, as many have pointed out, there's a whole range of people there for very various reasons with various grievances and some are peaceful and others are not. And so it's hard to predict, you know, how they will respond. Nick, the last time we had you on the podcast was to talk about federal agents being sent to Chicago and other cities. Do we have any updates on that? How has that been going and how has their presence in other cities been going? I think a lot of that is still under negotiation. You know, the local and, and city leaders are kind of in a bind, particularly Democrats, 
Um, on the one hand, they are facing pressure from their constituents to get um, some of the uh, spike in crime under control. At the same time, they don't want to be seen as, as cooperating with the Trump administration, and the, and the president doesn't make it any easier for them by um, attacking them and blaming them for the problem and then presenting himself as the solution. So I think, you know, a lot of that is still being worked out. But one of the trends we have seen is that these cities seem to be much more comfortable working with the Department of Justice and its agents like the FBI, the DEA and marshals, rather than the Department of Homeland Security, given its, you know, increasing reputation as kind of the president's private militia. Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Anytime. Cigarette sales have still been a very profitable business for the big tobacco companies, but they have had to adjust to kind of a predictable decline every year. They've seen like a four to six percent decline in cigarette sales. But this year, that number is looking a lot better for them. Joining us now is Jennifer Maloney, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Some of the side effects of the pandemic, an interesting thing, cigarette smoking is making a comeback. People are spending less on travel and entertainment. Uh, They're spending more time at home and having more opportunities to light up. They're also switching back to traditional cigarettes, more from vaping devices. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about this. Well, the maker of Marlboro cigarettes, a company called Altria, um, makes a quarterly disclosure on how its business is doing. And This week, they disclosed that the cigarette business is doing a lot better than they thought it would be. Um, They revised their projections and said that, you know, although we've been seeing a a decades-long decline in cigarette sales, that actually the picture is looking a lot rosier. And they say that it's in part because people are at home, not going out and socializing with friends as much during lockdown and have more time to smoke. They say that Yes, unemployment numbers are high, but stimulus checks are helping low- and middle-income cigarette smokers afford their packs of cigarettes. And um, at the same time, they say that the recent restrictions on e-cigarette flavors that the federal government put in place have motivated some people to switch back to traditional cigarettes. Yeah, I bet a lot of uh, public health advocates are not going to like hearing that stimulus checks and increased unemployment benefits is making more people still buy them. Uh, But one of the interesting things that they said, though, they said that the trend is significant enough to slow down the years long decline. So to be clear, cigarette smoking is not necessarily going up. Uh, You know, it's not going into other territory. It's just kind of slowing that decline right now. Right. So for many, many years, um, the number of cigarette smokers has been on the decline in the U.S. Cigarette sales have still been a very profitable business for the big tobacco companies, but they have had to adjust to kind of a predictable decline every year. They've seen like a four to six percent decline in cigarette sales. But this year, that number is looking a lot better for them. So they revised their projections for the year, and they said that cigarette sales are expected to decline only between 2 and 3.5%. That's a big difference for them. On the e-cigarette side, Altria, as you mentioned, uh, you know they, they own Marlboro. They made a big wager on e-cigarettes in 2018. They bought a huge stake in Juul Labs, but 
you know, Juul Labs went through a bunch of different problems that uh, you said the FDA kind of limited the sales of the fruity uh, and mint flavors of e-cartridge cigarettes. And then there was that whole vaping related lung illness, which actually wasn't really related to e-cigarettes themselves. It was more uh, vaping products with THC, but still overall, it kind of put a damper on the e-cigarette business. It did. So it was it was a rough year uh, for e-cigarettes. If you think back to last fall, um, there are headlines in the news every day around vaping and e-cigarettes, whether it was you know the surge in young people vaping and public health officials trying to figure out how to stop children and teens from vaping. Um, then there was this mysterious long illness that seemed to be linked somehow to vaping devices. Um, the CDC put out a recommendation not to vape anything, including traditional e-cigarettes, you know, that, that deliver nicotine. Um, then they revised that advice as more research came in indicating that the illnesses were linked to vitamin E oil in marijuana vaping devices. But at first they were saying, don't vape anything. So all of that contributed to kind of a, a damping effect on um, vaping. And, and some people sort of the main takeaway from all that news coverage was maybe e-cigarettes aren't such a great alternative. I'm going to switch back to cigarettes still the group that took back to cigarettes leaving you know the vaping scene were Americans older than 50 is uh, from what Altria said and you know you have to obviously they're talking in a business sense but it sounds so nefarious sometimes they said it benefited the entire cigarette category people kind of moving away and going back to traditional cigarettes they have said that the demographic that they see shifting back to cigarettes is this 50 plus adult and they further noted that those older adults tend to prefer discount cigarettes. So it's actually hurting Marlboro's share right now of the cigarette category because as these older adults switch back from e-cigarettes to cigarettes, they're not buying premium brands like Marlboro. They're buying the cheaper ones. Um, and so that's chipping away at Marlboro's market share. Wow. What an interesting look and to see you know, how things change over time and throughout, you know, a pandemic as we're going through. Jennifer Maloney, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It appears the organizers allowed people to congregate in front of the stage. That was not part of the permit. We would have never had allowed that. We are investigating the matter. Joining us now is Dan Adler writer at Vanity Fair. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. This past Saturday night in Walter Mill, Long Island, there was a concert. It was an event called Safe and Sound where the Chainsmokers did a set. There was also the CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, who did a DJ set. He DJ goes by DJ Diesel. But what came out of this was just a bunch of pictures and videos of people not really properly social distancing. The New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, got really mad about it. He said that there's going to be an investigation about this. Dan, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, so like you said, on, on Saturday night, there's this chain smokers concert, and the two openers are David Solomon. It goes by DJ Diesel on the side, and also Jay Schneiderman, who's the town of Southampton supervisor. He played with this band. So it's sort of this like 
real confluence of Hampton's wealth and social figures. Um, the chain smokers have this reputation as being a very sort of like fratty, lowest common denominator EDM group. And then you have in the audience people like the Winklevoss twins. So it's a very, um, you know, it's a gathering of money in the Hamptons, which is already kind of an easy target. And on top of that, of course, you have the pandemic. So then video circulates on Sunday that appears to show a lack of social distancing. The organizers have sort of stuck to their guns and said, we took all these measures and everything was fine. But the way this sort of played out on Twitter and then in the governor's comments on it, it's become something much more controversial than that. And I'm sure prices for tickets kind of ranged the spectrum, but Billboard was reporting that tickets to the concert could cost up to $25,000. I'm sure that was for more like VIP packages or whatever. So the organizers of the concerts, they say they went through a lot of different things to ensure that people could social distance and everybody was safe. They did temperature checks. They provided face masks. They had security that was monitoring people for social distancing. And specifically the videos and photos that people saw of people right in front of the stage, they said those were for people that weren't in their cars because this was kind of a drive-in type thing. This is for organizers yeah. and, and family, and that's why they were in the front. Yeah, I think the line from organizers has been, and the, and the line from David Solomon too, has been if there were exceptions to the protocols that we were trying to take, then um, what can you do? I think David Solomon said that he actually left the concert once he saw that the rules weren't being followed. But again, I think it's hard to escape the overarching image of this group of very wealthy, powerful people in this very fraught time gathering at an event that probably didn't need to happen. You got to love the memes and people going on the internet. You know, it all turned right into this thing like, you did all that for the chain smokers? Nothing against them, you know, in their music, but that was kind of the thing. It's not like Daft Punk came out of nowhere for a big reunion show, something that you had to see. It was something that you could have seen yeah. more regularly. But the big question is like, why would they approve those permits when everybody, you know, large gatherings, you know, despite the best efforts that you have, you know that people are going to kind of break some of the rules, not wear a mask here or there and not do the complete social distancing. So why would a permit be issued is the big thing. I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but I did mention that Jay Schneiderman, who's the town supervisor, his band performed at the event. So there is clearly some some interest in having this go on. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking at a pandemic that is deadly in so many cases, but has also disproportionately fallen across class and race lines. So I think maybe there's some sense among the very white, very muddied Hampton set that they don't have to worry about this quite as much. And um, strictly speaking, that's true. The coronavirus hasn't affected people who have Hamptons houses in the way it has affected other communities. What kind of penalties would the organizers face, if any? That part is still not clear to me. There's some aspect of this that feels a little bit like the respective parties puffing out their chests. Cuomo says that he's launching an investigation. What does that investigation mean? I'm not exactly clear yet, but I think the prevailing sense is that Officials in the town of Southampton could face civil fines or even criminal liability. Dan Adler, writer at Vanity Fair, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.